Welcome to another episode of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And our third episode, I think at least three in a row, on China. And so this will be a different perspective as we're talking about not U.S. China, but Australia and China. And and we have, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we have on uh, Eric Bagshaw from the Sydney Morning Herald. He is the China correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. But he is right now, unfortunately, because of travel restrictions, yeah, well, I say unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know if it's unfortunate you're in Australia or not. I think that's what the byline says. But you're in you're in Australia. The view looks beautiful, uh, Eric. So is it unfortunately or fortunately that you're in Australia? And thank you for coming on. Good to be with you, Ryan. Yeah, look, it's um a mixture of both. Uh, I think at the moment here in Australia, it's 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 a pretty good place to be for COVID. There's very very little uh, transmission, and right now uh, we are also experiencing extraordinary. Uh, levels of tension with China, so uh, <laughs> probably safer to be in Australia at the moment, but yeah. um, but still, you know, China is still the, the biggest story of our times. Okay, yeah, it's a, let's let's hop into that. We were talking offline, kind of. Um, obviously, I'm gonna ask the, ask the kind of dumb questions, and you give us the smart answers here. Uh, I do remember, I think we covered this in the newsletter that China, uh, that Australia had said back in April, March, April, that they were warning a World Health Organization to, to go to China to do a mission to see what's going on there. They were pushing against Trump's assertions that it was released from some Wuhan virus uh, uh, lab, but they did want to know what are the origins of the virus. And that seemed to kind of start this trade war, however you want to describe it. Uh, it started with barley. Now we're talking about iron, potentially. What Coal, what, what, what's going on and what did I miss? And what's the, if you can, to both sides, what's both sides' perspective on this issue? Well, to really get back to the origins of this dispute, you probably actually have to go back to 2018. And um, and that's when Australia made the decision to ban Huawei, the uh, Chinese telecommunications network provider from the 5G network. So Australia was the first country in the world uh, to make that decision because it was worried about the security risks of, of allowing a state-backed Chinese firm into the 5G network. What that then set off was a period of rising tension uh, and then by 2020, um, we get to uh, the coronavirus. Uh, and, and then in April, again, Australia was the first country in the world to publicly call for an inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. Um, and that was for two reasons. Firstly, the, U the US Trump administration was pushing an un unsubstantiated theory about the virus coming out of the lab. And secondly, China was not allowing independent inspectors in to, to let people know more about the virus. So you had two superpowers kind of going at each other right. and Australia said, right, let's go through the middle and let's find out what actually happened here. Unfortunately, that really pissed China off um, because they, uh, they saw that as kind of an attack on them. Uh, they saw it as Australia blaming China for the virus and the call for an inquiry then actually, you know, basically spiraled into quite a bit of momentum um, and within a, about six weeks, it did actually get up at the World Health Organization um, with more than 100 countries supporting it, uh, including China itself, who had to kind of be brought into the diplomatic table. But after that, China started making somewhat of an example of Australia. Um, it firstly hit barley um, and beef, two of Australia's exports to China. And they're, you know, they're worth a couple of billion dollars a year each in trade. Yeah. They're not huge, but they're not insignificant. Um, and that was really sending a message 
uh, China, Australia continued to speak up on things like Hong Kong, Xinjiang, uh, issues in the South China Sea, uh, a whole range of big diplomatic debates that were going on. Australia continued to, to talk about them at multilateral forums and, and also uh, among the ministers here. So you had this sense from China's perspective that Australia was sort of really pushing um, somewhat of a, world, a worldwide alliance along with the US and then most recently the UK. Um, and so that led to a kind of perception that there was this middle power. I mean, Australia is an island of 25 million people, bottom of the, uh, the, the Pacific Ocean um, and taking on China, a country with 1.4 billion people, mm-hmm. you know, spans the breadth of Asia. The disparity in terms of their power um, is enormous. Mm-hmm. But he was this uppity country down the bottom of the world sort of speaking up to China. And I didn't like it much at all. So what would happen then is he had more trade strikes. So by uh, September, October, we, we were really looking at um, things like cotton, copper, uh, uh, what else do we have? There's about half a dozen exports. Then finally, last week, we got confirmation uh, that China would start, would, would, would be preventing Australian coal imports from entering the country. Now, this had come after quite a few months of Australian ships being stuck off the coast of China and unable to load their coal, unload their coal. But it wasn't really officially confirmed. There's sort of this grey area. We don't quite know what's happening. Then uh, Chinese state media confirmed that this had occurred, and that's the big one. That's Australia's coal exports to China are worth 14 billion dollars a year. It's our third largest export, um, and a very substantial driver um, of, of key parts of the economy. So, with that hit, um, really the Morrison government started calling out what it now sees as straight up economic coercion. Um, and so we've reached a situation now where Australia and China's diplomatic ties are at their lowest level in 50 years uh, and seem irreparably damaged at the moment. Okay, and what was Australia a part of, was it Australia, India, and what other nation that had like a joint military base agreement in that time period as well? Yeah, so the Quad is, a, is an agreement between Australia, Japan, India, and, and the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they, and they run uh, naval exercises, uh, Malabar exercises, they're called. Uh, and uh, and, and that, that group of countries um, joins, you know, a kind of, yeah, a military agreement, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. And so that, again, comes back to a perception that Australia is curtailing um, China's ability to, uh, to, to operate, for instance, in the South China Sea, where it's disputed borders, um, and again, is part of this global coalition that's trying to constrain China. So uh, the, the, all of these factors kind of add together to a climate where, um, you know, China is increasingly unimpressed by Australia's actions. So, but if I remember correctly, when they uh, took the barley exports uh, and they said, we're not going to buy from Australia, they just increased buying from the U.S. and Brazil, maybe. Uh, so they were, they were upset with the U.S., but they were, 
I know they increased their soybean per, um, purchases during that, those time periods. It was weird from the U.S. side because they're like, okay, hey, we're mad at Australia. What Trump was saying was far more inflammatory than what Australia was saying, and they increased their their uh, imports or um, yeah from the U.S. And so, I, how do you guys view that, and you know, how do you take that messaging? Because you're over here like, well, <laughs> we're trying to be, we're just trying to say we want to talk. You know, Trump's over here saying that you guys created it. Like, why are we getting punished so hard? Yeah, I mean, look at the situation with the U.S. Um, uh, with the U.S. at the moment is is that you know obviously they've just signed this tr- truce basically uh, the China-U.S. trade deal um, after 18 months of a really bitter trade dispute with, mm-hmm. with China, uh, but just as that had kind of started to um, cool down a bit, the tensions with Australia rose, and so as part of that U.S. trade deal. Um, you know, China has to match a certain quota of soybean imports and and barley perhaps as well. Um, So I don't think there's any, there's not a sense in Australia that the US is is taking Australia's lunch Mm -hmm. from China in in a sense. Um, I think the reality is that whether it was the US, Russia, um, uh, Indonesia, any of those other partners, China was always going to be able to find the source for those other products. Yeah. And so barley, beef, wine, they're important, but they're not really significant industries. However, there is one big resource that China has yet to curtail, and that's iron ore. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia is the la- world's largest exporter of iron ore. Um, it accounts for up to 80% of the you know uh, of supply at the moment because Brazil's got a lot of capacity constraints because its mines in Bale, Bale mines are, have been hit by two mm-hmm. natural disasters and then the coronavirus. So Australia is the dominant player in the world iron ore market and China doesn't have any other suppliers of that. But I think if it, if it was to hit uh, Australian iron ore, uh, you know, it would be almost impossible to see how bilateral relations could get back on the right track just mm-hmm. because it's worth so much money and so important to the Australian economy. So uh, you, you brought up two years ago and I've read, and again, this is this, piecing together reports, trying to understand the, the history here. I read some Australians have have um, articulated that they were frustrated with maybe some anti-dumping regulations on the Australian side that that frustrated the Chinese. Um, I, I don't know how anti-dumping works in Australia, if it's the same as the U.S. Maybe what are, what are your thoughts on the anti-dumping stuff from both sides? I think it, from understanding, maybe there's been some um, regulation going back and forth. And how much does that play into what we're seeing today? Mm. Yeah, so actually Australia is a really prolific user of anti-dumping measures. Um, the Australian government would argue that it has proof, for example, that Chinese steel is being dumped in Australia at discount prices and crowding out the local producers, you know, basically by offering discount prices, um, which is what dumping basically means. But um, Australia is one of the largest users of anti-dumping measures in, in the world. And so when China points to Australian products being dumped into China, um, it kind of makes it an easier argument to make. But the problem is that Australian products aren't being dumped into China. Um, they're, they're not going in at discount prices. The, the Australian wine, for example, which has just been hit with a 200% tariff as part of this dispute, is, the, is among the most expensive wine in China. Um, very little evidence to suggest that it's actually being dumped there. Likewise, barley. Um, the, the barley deals that Australia was signing were, were really high quality, high, high priced barley. 
It's not the kind of stuff you just dump in there to try and crowd out other, other producers. So they've got these really spurious claims. Um, the anti-dumping, the, the dumping measures that have been taken by Australia on things like Chinese steel, basically Australian government says that, they, that those allegations are stacked up. Um, and it, it has to provide a certain level of transparency in some of those investigations. The Chinese side, however, is not particularly fond of transparency. So um, what we end up seeing is a lot of these uh, measures being taken through things like verbal instructions to traders. Uh, you don't get official notices or the Chinese customs officials really confirming many of the details, because if they did, uh, most likely they'd be found in breach of World Trade Organization obligations. So you've got this situation where there's whispers going through the industry that ultimately gets through to the media. All of a sudden you're seeing that Australian wine or Australian, um, Australian resources are not getting through, but you haven't got official comment um, until you get a real state media confirmation from the Chinese side. Okay, that's, that's, that's all very helpful. Um, so I want to talk about the coal, but I, I want one more question about the barley. Um, I mm. see that you have a story that you put out about the, the farmers are backing uh, Australia uh, yep. in Canada at the WTO over the barley. So when I think of barley, obviously I don't know what the farming situation in Australia, but you know you would have, I'm sure, some large farmers, but also some small farmers in a pandemic world right now. Um, it, are these uh, barley cuts disproportionately impacting the, the small farmers in Australia, or is it everyone's just mm. kind of taking a lick, or are they able to find somewhere else to get their barley exported to? It's really interesting. Um, Saudi Arabia actually has stepped forward um, and is taking a, a heap of Australian barley all of a sudden. Um, I think what's happened is basically farmers who are overproducing barley in Australia for the Chinese market, you know, there's no way that Australia needs anywhere near as much as barley as it produces. And because China was such an insatiable customer, mm. it was producing heaps and heaps of the stuff. Um, and so there's an, an, a surplus of it obviously available in the market. And what that means now is that Australian barley farmers are offering, you know, huge bales for discount prices. And Saudi Arabia is very happy to step forward and, and take that to feed, uh, for animal feed mostly. Um, and I suspect there are other countries um, in, the, in the region, um, particularly in the Middle East, who, who, will, who may come forward and, and want to take advantage of some of those discounts as well. Um, I think it'll be a restructuring, um, you know, if, if China is no longer Australia's major trading partner in those key, some of those key areas, a lot of those farms will not only have to diversify their markets, but also diversify their crops. And they'll have to find plant uh, or, or, or animals that other countries um, other than China have a demand for. Again, it's difficult because China's market is just so large. Right. Um, you know, you're talking about 1.4 billion people, right? So right. the scale of it, um, is almost impossible to comprehend apart from anywhere like India. But India is also very complex because India has extraordinarily high agriculture subsidies. It's really a very protectionist economy. It's nothing like China in terms of its import quotas. So um, it's, it's a really vexed, complicated situation. And I suspect it'll take a couple of years for Australian producers to, to kind of reorientate themselves. Okay, so you said that coal was kind of the next escalation and then, of course, you have iron, which would be the ultimate maybe uh, check or checkmate or end of the relation, if you will. Um, so, from the, you know, so having a background in energy, 
Um, I think the the coal stuff may surprise people just how much coal is out out there and and being used, especially by China. Um, if they're not getting it from Australia, a where are they getting it at? And then B is the coal situation like you described with the barley? Is Australia overproducing it, it, at a at, at too much, or they or can they find other buyers? Or what would you do to supplement um, if this is a long term shutout from China? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a perfect storm for Australian coal. Um, you know, we've got a situation where, again, one of the largest customers in China uh, is is changing its its supply lines. Um, it's just signed a, a three-year deal with Indonesia mm. to, to import coal. Um, and Australia will try and diversify towards Japan, Pakistan, uh, India. Uh, but again, it's the, the market's Coal's about the third largest export, so it's not it's not it's not not huge, but but still, yeah, um, but still significant. And will other markets take it? Yes, for a time. But then, of course, you know, really, the writing's on the wall a bit because overall coal consumption's going down. Um, not only are power plants becoming more efficient and using less of it, uh, you know, we're heading towards a situation where. All of Australia's major trading partners are adopting net zero emissions targets, except for Australia. Um, you know, Biden administration in the US, you'd expect to be moved quickly towards a net zero emissions target. Uh, Japan, South Korea, the UK, Europe, everyone's going in one direction. Um, so Australia is very much an outlier there. And it is because um, key political communities in Australia, much like in the US, um, in, in, some of those, um, in some of those key states, have relied on fossil fuels and resources for a long time. And so they have an outsized influence on the electorate and politicians have been scared of basically upsetting those key, those key voters. Um, but now if the market's kind of being pulled from underneath people, both by trade sanctions uh, and by climate change, um, that's, a, that's a pretty perilous future for one of Australia's um, biggest industries. And so do you think China is looking at this um, and they have an end goal here with Australia? I mean, I can't imagine the Australian government coming out and saying, hey, we're sorry about, you know, asking to see what the origins of the virus are. In fact, I think China's kind of uh, living on borrowed time on some level because if in March, um, when, the, when, the, when the coronavirus stuff was heating up here in the States and you know, kind of in the West, if you had told me we'd still be talking about this at the level that we are now, I'd been surprised. Um, which meant that I, I, I presume by the end of this year, uh, Europe, the EU, and, the, and, and the states would have been looking to China for answers, for questions, legit or not. They'd have been putting the pressure back on China. They haven't been able to do that because, well, they're still dealing with the pan pandemic. And it seems like every nation on some level is somewhat frustrated with how their nations handled it. So China's kind of gotten a free pass to kind of do what they want to do because they're not getting a lot of external pressure like they normally would because the local governments just don't have that kind of sustained will. So from Australia's standpoint, um, you, you, well, <laughs> I wasn't saying you're kind of on an island, so, no pun intended, but you, know, you, you are kind of out there on your own right now. Obviously you have support of the, of the U S and, and you, but, but, do you feel, do you guys feel like, okay, hey, we need more support. We're looking for a stronger backing. Is, this some, is there some kind of goal from Australia's standpoint that you think you navigate these waters? What's kind of the end game here with dealing with China? Because they do have a disproportionate size um, economy and people like you say, but um, they, if they're buying your goods, it's hard to get mad at them. But if they're not buying your goods, it's mm. kind of hard to deal with them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really important point. The fact is in April when they first called for the inquiry, Australia is very fortunate that it contained 
the virus quite quickly and so was in a diplomatic position to try and throw a bit of a diplomatic weight around while the US and Europe were grappling with, with mm -hmm. sizable outbreaks. So, you know, the merits of calling for the inquiry, I think will be endlessly debated. People mm -hmm. can definitely argue that we stuck our neck out um, in doing so, but you know, that, that's, that is what happened. Um, where we're at now is most recent, it's only a couple of weeks ago actually that the um, Chinese embassy in Canberra here um, you know, met up with some reporters and, um, and issued um, a list of demands, um, basically a list of grievances rather on a 14 point list. Now on this list are things like Huawei, there's also national security legislation, there's um, stuff that basically tries to curb Chinese Communist Party influence in Australian politics, mm -hmm. the whole range of things, even even things like critical reporting on China by the independent media. Uh, okay, I've seen that. That's true, Bill. That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. The, the the fact that the idea that the government in, in, in Australia would be responsible for yeah. unfriendly reporting in the media, right? So there's a fundamental misunderstanding uh, on both sides in this in this yeah. debate, right? Um, and what that list does, though, unfortunately, is it now leaves China and Australia in a in an intractable position because if Australia was to move back on some of those um, on some of those policies or or try and ameliorate some of them, that would be seen as a sign of weakness. Uh, and of course, China now um, has to continue to punish Australia until it wins some concessions. So. It's a it's a lose lose situation, and the thing with diplomacy is conventionally, you would have these discussions. You would, might make a list of grievances, but you would do it diplomat to diplomat, and everything would be behind closed doors. Now that they chose to, because they'd cut off all ministerial contact with Australia, issue diplomatic threats via the media, mm -hmm. um, we're we're now in a situation where uh, it's it's hard for either neither side has any room to move. Right, and so. From Australia's point of view, the end game, that is a very, that's a multi-billion dollar question. <laughs> um, and they, the goal here is to reach a point where Australia can have frank discussions with China without fear of economic coercion. Yeah. And the logic goes that if they wear some of this pain for the next year, two years, maybe three years, then after a while, that relationship will start to equalise. Because if you start censoring yourself and you say that you can't talk about Hong Kong, mm. or you can't talk about Xinjiang, then of course, you know, you're basically caving into some of those demands. And, you know, I don't think it's reasonable for the public or business to expect the government of a liberal democracy to not speak out on human rights issues. And that's the situation, we're, that's the trajectory we were heading in. Mm -hmm. So th they've made a decision that, that if they don't speak up now, then they won't be able to ever in future. And all of a sudden in 20 years time, you know, you may be in a situation where decisions are being made for you and your country by people outside your borders. Right. Yeah. And see, I think what you're talking about there, um, when, I talk about, when I talk about China, is if you look at like Africa, I, I think the, the Belt and Road Initiative were... They're really, I mean, in my opinion, they're overextended and not only extended, overextended from a financial standpoint, I think they're overextended from a diplomatic standpoint because, um, you know, African nations that are emerging markets and they're trying to find their feet and they're trying to rid corruption, you know, they're only going to take so much China stuff before they're like, you know what, 
<laughs> we ain't paying you money back. We're going to throw you out of the country and we're going to do our own thing. Come, come, come do something about it. You know, um, Australia, obviously, and you know, the U S we're going to handle a little bit differently, like you say. Um, and so I, I find it interesting to hear the Australian perspective because, um, you know, in the U S the big debate is, is China going to take over or the, you know, will the U S bomb them into oblivion and all this nonsense. But to me, there's a lot more nuance and some of the things that you're talking about here is how the relationship is being handled. Um, I, I find quite fascinating. So, uh, let me, I'll let you go with this kind of a uh, couple, uh, two questions, I guess. First off, is there any way that, that the Australia might divert? You said iron was the big uh, export. Um, obviously, that's important to China. Uh, you being there, you know, you know, they're always building stuff and doing stuff. Is there a way that the, that Australia says, you know what, China, I'll tell you what, we're going to stick it to you. We're going to sell our, our iron somewhere else. Is, it, is, that, is that even possible um, that, could, that could happen from the Australian standpoint to put pressure on China? Or is it um, too risky or, you know, outside the government's mm. hands, maybe even? Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to start restricting iron ore, you'd basically be sanctioning yourself. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, it's the world's biggest buyer of iron ore. Yeah. Uh, there's there's no easy replacement for that market. Quite simply, no one else is building as much stuff. Uh, you need the iron ore to make steel to build infrastructure, right? Yeah. Um, so Australia has an is is, is a, you know they call it kind of the lucky country, and and for good reason. It has an extraordinarily large deposit of iron ore and other natural resources for a country this small this population. So it's a natural advantage um, that many other places would kill for. Um, and I think it just means that the government now has to actually spend some time thinking about the industries that are going to make it more successful in different economic areas. And that's, you know, whether that's things like services or um, uh, technology, you know, things that America has always been really quite good at um, and, and East Asia as well, uh, because ultimately, um, you know, we need to be better at things than just digging up, digging up rocks. Um, uh, but that's a question that the government has to grapple with and the government and the, and the question that companies have to grapple with all the while because of the supply restrictions on iron ore, you now have a situation where the, the, the price of iron ore is going through the roof. Mm. So perversely, despite all of these trade strikes from China and Australia, which now probably cover about $20, $20 billion worth of exports at a kind of upper end um, of the estimate, Australia will actually have a better trade balance with China this year because of the price of iron ore. And it's actually flowing back into the federal government mm. revenue so it's bringing in taxes. And so we're talking about a multi-billion dollar boost to Australia's um, tax revenue base, despite all this tension with China. Yeah. But of course, that's not really a realistic situation for the long term. So they've got to make use of it while, um, while it's happening. But it's, you've really got to plan for the future because that kind of equilibrium cannot hold. Well, it's fascinating, and I enjoy reading your work from up here in the States. And for the listener's perspective, um, I, I really appreciate it for you coming on. I reached out to you, well, it's an hour and a half, an hour and a half ago. And said, never heard of me. said, hey, we, we want to come on and talk about this. And uh, you were ready, willing, and able and uh, took the questions rapid fire the best I could articulate them. And so I, I do appreciate that and your time. Um, and we'll be following your work. Is this is a, It's a story that you just – it's so frustrating because I, I, I did think – that the reaction to Australia when they when they said, "Hey, we want to see an investigation," I thought it was very fair. I mean, like I'm not a Wuhan lab, uh, lab theory guy. That's not my that's not my particular cup of tea. Um, 
but I also don't think it's, you know, to ask a question, hey, what would happen here uh, when we have you lying to the World Health Organization? So, you know, listen, the, the question the question Australia asked was fine, I thought. I didn't think there was really worth all of this hoopla. And so it's um, it's been interesting to kind of watch that and then also how China has has reacted with other nations who have been more critical of them since then. And so I um, uh, just want to hear the Australian perspective. And so I appreciate your time uh, on short notice, especially. Where can people find your work, follow you, or do we point them to? Um, as you continue to, to cover these stories. Yeah, so um, follow along with us at the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia uh, and The Age. Uh, that's the newspapers. Uh, look them up online. Um, yeah, we, we, we do a hell of a lot of China coverage in Australia, possibly more than, than most places in, in the world because it is such a big economic partner and a, a, real, a real political challenge at the moment. So, um, yeah, check out, check out our work there and, um, and great to chat to you, Ryan. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And you know what? Maybe um, I'll, I've never been to Australia. I need a reason to go. Maybe I'll just fly down so we can talk uh, Australia-China relations, if nothing else. So, uh, Absolutely. Welcome anytime. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it.